0: Well, I continue to meet new folks, so I feel like I want to repeat every time I get up here. Uh, I'm Clay, and uh, this is our college ministry at Timberlake. And one of the things we do on Sunday mornings is we go through um, a number of core convictions, things that we want to see implanted on your hearts as college students, young adults, career folks, um, because life is difficult, and God's Word has given us clarity, and we want to um, just kind of put our anchors deep in some of these key areas. So, what have we been studying? The gospel, yes, the gospel. We have been studying the gospel. And why are we studying the gospel? What does Paul say about it in, in 1 Corinthians 15? It is of first importance, right? So there's there's nothing more important that we could look at than the gospel. Why is that? What are some reasons that the gospel is of first importance? Shout them out the quicker you got. I got a lot to cover today, all right? It's, central, it's essential for our salvation, right? There's no other message by which we can be saved other than the gospel message, which means that you need to know it clearly. All right, what else? Okay, God's means of saving people. So if we're, if we're going to try to do evangelism, we're going to try to be part of the mission of God, then uh, nothing else is going to bring somebody to saving faith in Christ apart from the gospel. So you need to know it with clarity for that reason. Yeah, what else? Why else is the gospel essential? For growth. A lot of answers coming from this corner. What's up with you guys? All right? Yes, it's essential for our growth. Our growth. We need to grow in Christ by the gospel. How does that work? Why is the gospel essential for our growth? This side. Zeroing in on you. Let's go. Why is it essential for our growth? How is it essential for our growth? Okay, it spurs us on to live by the Spirit. Yes, meaning we did not earn God's favor, right? God's favor was earned for us. That's what the Gospel says. Christ earned God's favor on our behalf. And so when we come to Him, we're not coming to to merit salvation. We're coming to receive it freely from Him. And then that changes everything. That changes all the dynamics, right? So our obedience then is is out of love for Him. Not out of trying to make him happy with us in some fundamental way, he is pleased with us when we obey. But it's not—it's not, it's not a, a pleased. Now I'm going to bring you into the family kind of pleasure. It's a pleased as as our father kind of pleasure. So yeah, essential for our sanctification. We can talk more about that. So when we're talking about the gospel, we've talked about the four these four themes that are central to the sort of the overarching message of the gospel. Four four themes that we need to know about if we're going to understand the gospel clearly. What are they? God, so we need to know about God, what else? Man, we need to know about us, who we are, we need to know, what else? Christ, and then finally, the response, the gospel is a message that that demands a response, right? We must respond to it, it's actually a command um, to repent and believe in Christ. So yeah, we've got to know about God, and that's where we've been, God is the good creator, he's the good king. Human beings are all His children in the widest sense of that term. Pre-fall, definitely His children. We are accountable to Him, dependent upon Him for our very existence and sustenance. That means we must trust Him or else we die. There is no life apart from trusting God for human beings. No life apart from trusting Him for humans. We might live physically, but there's no spiritual life happening. And there's certain death coming. And spiritual death coming if we don't trust him. So we saw that clearly in Genesis one and two. But what we also saw was was a uh, teaching central teaching about man in Genesis one and two. What did we look at there? What two things did we see about human beings? In Genesis two and then three. Okay, yeah, we're in the image of God, so there's a purpose for human beings, right? Pre-fall purpose for human beings, God created them for a reason, created you for a reason, and then what else did we see? Did that purpose succeed? The, at least in the, in the uh, that's a badly phrased question. Did man sinned against God, yes. So, we, we put ourselves in rebellion against his purpose. So, let's think about the purpose. We're made in his image to reflect him, just like we said, to reign for him. We're commanded in Genesis 1 to take dominion of the earth. That means to cultivate it for His glory. We're commanded to increase with children so that His image and dominion spreads over all the earth through humans who rejoice in Him, who trust in Him, who serve Him. And it's a massive task. And it's a massive task for a a truly incredible creature, a human being, made in the image of God. We might call this task God's charter for creation. His charter for creation, I've used that a couple different times. Humans are God's covenant sons, and we have been given a task and told to be faithful in that task. So we could say it like this, God's purpose for creation hinges on the obedience of His sons. God's purpose for creation hinges, at least they'll say in part, it's ultimately on Him, we'll see but it hinges in part on having an obedient, faithful son or sons, human beings. But, like we saw, what happened? Did we fulfill it? No, we did not. We looked at that for the last few weeks. We rebelled against God. We looked looked Him in the face, shook our fist at Him. We refused to trust Him in the garden. We refused to serve Him. We tried to be autonomous from Him. We tried to discern good and evil in ourselves, right? But what happened? We became foolish instead. We were deceived. Paul would later say in Romans 1 death ensued for humanity. So we all die now. And yet, in these chapters, there was surprising grace. In judgment, there is mercy. Surprisingly, at least to me, the creation charter is not over after the rebellion of man in Genesis 3. Now, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be fulfilled quite the same way. But we find out that God, in Genesis 3, is thoroughly committed to seeing this project through. But now, with the presence of sin, God's purpose for the world will involve tremendous pain, tremendous suffering, Yet he's promised that one day, remember, an offspring will come. Genesis three fifteen, a faithful son who will crush the serpent's head and ultimately set in motion the full restoration of God's creation, just like he intended. Genesis one and two. So, from the seed of the woman, you tracking with me when I say seed of the woman? Do you remember that? Genesis three fifteen. Okay, big. It's important. Okay. So from the seed of this woman, the seed of Eve. From her, in the Bible, comes Noah. Right? Noah. God makes a covenant with him, and he preserves his creation charter through Noah. Remember that? So, the earth is not filled with the image of God, it's filled with violence. Genesis 6. Every intention of thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6. It's the opposite of what God had intended. And so God brings a flood to judge the sinfulness of man, but preserves one family and thus preserves his creation charter. He preserves Noah. And he makes another and he makes a covenant with him. And Noah is it's important to know that Noah functions like a second Adam. But although Noah walks with God, he's not sinless, is he? We looked at that too. After the flood, he he has his own fall of sorts, so Noah's not the ultimate seed of the woman. It's clear. So, from Noah's line, then, woman's line, comes Abraham. That's the next major covenant head. God makes another covenant with him and with his entire family. And he promises to bless Abraham and in through him and his family to bring blessing back to the nation. Yet, the narrative goes on to show us that Abraham himself isn't perfectly faithful either. He is not the ultimate seed. So then fast forward. Abraham's family becomes who? Israel, the nation. They eventually become the nation of Israel, or as they're referred to, the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob, meaning Jacob's 12 sons. Those are the the 12 tribes of Israel. They're the house of Jacob. They go to Egypt. They're eventually enslaved there, but God redeems them in the Exodus and makes them his covenant people. His corporate son. His corporate son. Remember what he says in the Exodus? It's his firstborn son. He's he's redeeming his firstborn son, and so he kills the firstborn son of Pharaoh. It's a kind of climactic judgment because he's redeeming his son from Egypt. And he intends Israel as his son, just like Abraham, Noah, and Adam before them, before Israel, to be faithful to him so that they might as his nation, bring blessing to the nations. Make sense? Drawn on that, those promises made to Abraham. But it becomes incredibly clear that they are not able to do this as a nation. From day one, Exodus, after the Exodus, they worship a golden calf. They worship idols. They turn from the one true and living God and worship idols. And that casts a shadow on their entire history. It becomes clear that they, the nation, the corporate son, needs a representative. The corporate son needs someone who can lead them in obedience. So, enter the kings of Israel. Eventually, God makes a covenant with David. David, so you've got Noah, Abraham, Israel, David. Another covenant with David and with his dynasty, with his line. And it narrows the promised seed, Eve's son, it narrows it down to the lineage of Judah and to the Davidic dynasty. And yet, as faithful as David was, he was riddled through his sin too, wasn't he? That's Sheba. And so were all his sons, his entire dynasty. Ultimately, they became so faithless and that, that led the nation into such idolatry that judgment loomed large for God's sons. Exile was on the very near horizon. Exile is literally the vomiting of the land, the vomiting of the people out of the land. The way the Old Testament describes that. Just like Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, so Israel is driven from, from the land in exile. And what the exile shows us is that God's nation, His corporate son Israel, had been utterly unfaithful. Which brings with it an incredible tension, doesn't it? How will God fulfill His purpose for creation when His nation is utterly unable to do it? The covenant God made with His people is utterly broken, and so the Gentiles, the nations of the earth, sit in darkness. Well, we know the answer to that, and that's where we're headed today and over the next, and next week, Lord willing. God will provide for Israel and the nations His own obedient Son the Lord Jesus. And so today, I want us to transition into this theme of Christ, our third major headache, God, man, Christ. And before we jump into the New Testament, I want us to look at how Israel's prophets prepared the expectation, how they set the table, how they created categories for us, and I want us to look in particular at the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. you can open up to Isaiah chapter 1 and what we're going to see from Isaiah is that Christ is the substitutionary Savior so if God is the good creator man is the rebellious image Christ is the substitutionary Savior substitutionary Savior or we could say the obedient son Now, we're opening to Isaiah, and and really what I want to do is set the stage for how the gospel is going to come to us in the New Testament. This is the gospel of the Old Testament, (laughs) gospel according to Isaiah. Some people call it the fifth gospel because it's so central on this theme. And what I want to do is is set the stage from Isaiah, and then I'll I'll try to take a lightning fast tour through Luke. Okay? Okay and show you how these themes connect in Luke. I'm going to try to do it all in one message. We don't spill over here. We'll see how, we're, see how, we're, see how we go. Alright, we got like 30 minutes. Okay? And this is going to set us up to look in depth next week at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and to understand the theological significance of those events. It's not just that they happen. It's that they happen and they have incredible significance. So, this is what we're going to call the heart of the gospel. What Jesus has accomplished is the heart of the gospel message. So let's look at Isaiah. Right out of the gate. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah picks up on the tension of where we just left off in the story. Israel is a spiritual mess. Having wholly failed in her mission as Kian, God's sons. Look in Isaiah. Chapter 1, start in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, earth, for the Lord has spoken. And this is a terrible translation. Children I have reared and brought up, although it's not children, it's sons in Hebrew. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Wow. Isaiah just starts us off with the sonship thing, doesn't it? Right out of the gate sons I have reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me the ox knows its owner the donkey its master's crib but Israel does not know my people do not understand ah sinful nation a people laden with iniquity offspring of evildoers children the sons sons who deal corruptly they have forsaken the Lord they have despised the Holy One of Israel they are utterly estranged in other words As God's son, she's failed. Israel has failed in her mission. And she now stands estranged from God. The Gentiles sit in darkness. She has thoroughly broken her end of the covenant, which means that exile and judgment await her. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, meaning the the whole nation. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. And judgment is next. Your country, almost proleptically, he looks out in the future and sees. The country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. He's going to go on to later compare her to Sodom and Gomorrah. You get the picture. And if you flip over to verse 21, the faithful city, Jerusalem, the capital city of this beautiful nation that God had, the city of the sonship, right? The Davidic city. This city, he says, has become a whore. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness at one time lodged in her, but now murderers. He goes on. And although she's a, 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 a prostitute now, the city has prostituted herself, so to speak, God says He will purify this city and restore it, meaning He will purify the nation. Look down in verse 24. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you, that's the nation, I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So he's going to bring her back. He is going to restore her through a purging, through a cleansing. So, what will the result be of this purging and cleansing of the nation of Israel? Well, as a result, the nations will come to know the God of Israel. So he goes on in chapter 2. Verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It's restoration language. and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations... See that? All the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. Why? For out of Zion shall go the law, the teaching, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See that very clearly in Acts? He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. A nation shall not lift up sword against the nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What is he saying? He's saying that as Israel is restored, cleansed, restored, brought back to its rightful place, Israel will then become a light to the nation. And the Gentiles will come to faith in Yahweh so notice verse 5 of chapter 2 oh house of Jacob that's Abrahamic covenant language house of Jacob come let us walk in the light of the Lord because when Israel is obedient the nations will benefit but there's one problem in verse 6 you have rejected your people the house of Jacob Rejected the people, the house of Jacob. They are full of things from the east, the fortune tellers, the Philistines. So, my point here, we could go on, is God will, just like He promised, He will restore Abraham's family, the house of Jacob, and He will indeed bring blessing to the nation. So, He starts all of this. This is like encapsulated the message of Isaiah right here in the first two chapters. It's like, here it is. And now, what Isaiah is going to do is He's going to go and He's going to work that message out through the rest of Isaiah. And it's going to be surround sound. We're going to hear it, kind of like John does in 1 John, around and around and around these themes as we get more and more detail of exactly what's going to happen, how this is going to happen. And the question, the tension, is how? How will this happen when his people are so wicked? How will this happen when the Lord has rejected his people in verse 6, chapter 2? Well, flip over to chapter 9. Isaiah says that Israel will be delivered because they are given a new, ready for it? Son. A Davidic king, but he's not only a Davidic king. One of his names is Mighty God. And he is described as reigning forever in Isaiah chapter 9. So, God himself will come. Because God himself is going to become a human. So notice, Isaiah chapter 9. Pick it up in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So these are the people that, remember, they, Isaiah just encouraged him to walk walk in the light, but they haven't. They've walked in darkness. The language sound familiar? The people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. So here we're talking about Israel. You have increased its joy. Again, he's looking forward they rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden meaning he, Israel was burdened the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken all these things as on the day of Midian so what's he saying You're, you've delivered the nation from their oppressors for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood we burned as fuel for the fire kind of the same to the plowshares and pruning hooks he just talked about in chapter 2 there will be no more war why? Verse 6, for to us, a child is born, a son is given. We hear the Christmas verse, anew and fresh. In place of the sons of Israel, a son, singular, is given. This is picking up on Genesis 3, the seed language there. It's picking up on the sonship theme. And notice what he says. The government, verse 6, shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is of the Messiah. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He will reign eternally as the king, a human king. He was also God. Right here, Isaiah 9. But we still haven't been told exactly how sinful Israel is going to be redeemed and restored. We know it's going to happen through a son. And we definitely haven't been told yet how the sinful nations are going to be brought in. Because if Israel's bad, the idolatrous Gentile nations are really bad, right? It's clear that Israel had been unfaithful and the nations were definitely in rebellion. And that sin, as we've seen, has to be punished. God can't just sprinkle some pixie dust over it and say it's good. It has to be punished. He can't simply forgive without payment. If he did, he would be unjust. And not only does sin need to be punished, Israel and the nations need active righteousness credited to them. We need new natures given to us freely, don't we? We need God's own spirit if we're going to become obedient. And that is where, skipping over a lot of chapters now, Isaiah 53 comes in. This is one of the most beautiful and arguably the most central chapter in all of Isaiah. It's how this thing's going to break loose and break open, this whole creation charter. In this chapter, God's justice and his mercy meet together in judgment upon the son, or in this case, the servant. The servant and the son are two similar languages, two similar images here. And the passage actually starts back in Isaiah 52, 11. The, the kind of the I'm sorry, 13. And it starts not with the suffering of the servant, but with a but with a prediction of his um, Exaltation. Before he is glorified, though, before he enters into this regal and eternal glory, he must first suffer. So look, listen to this glory. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now he transitions. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so barred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So we shall sprinkle or startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed the word that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. That's Davidic language, by the way. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And when he's talking about we, he's talking about the nation, Israel. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So this, this one who's going to be exalted was first despised and rejected. As one who as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we, Israel, esteemed him not. But there's a theological significance to this, and this is where Isaiah is pressing in on. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted and in one sense he is but not because of his own sin he was pierced for our transgressions isaiah says and he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed do you hear that substitution language all we, Israel, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Now we're picking up Exodus imagery. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So he's going to die. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, he was innocent. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, theological significance. It was the will of the people? No. The will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his. This is this servant. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now a shift is happening. Talks about him seeing his offspring, prolonging his days. The will of the Lord prospering in his hand. Doesn't sound like a dead man. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So not only is he absorbing punishment but he's also mediating righteousness, granting righteousness by his own righteousness. And he shall bear their iniquities. In verse 11. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. There's going to be a reward for this king. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because, why? He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, makes intercession the transgressors. Wow! The son does everything that the nation cannot do. He leaves them behind and fulfills it. He is the obedient son and not just obedient, but the substance. He lives a perfect life. There's no deceit in his mouth. There's no violence in his hands. He's a perfect king. He earns the act of, He earns the righteousness. And yet, he takes our place. He receives the, the punishment that Israel and the nation should have received. And in fact, he. what we're going to see later is that he absorbs the punishments of the, of the broken covenant. The wrath of God. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put on him all the curses of the covenant, all the curses that Israel had earned for themselves. The son goes in and accomplishes. So, what do we learn here? We learn that he is rejected by the nation, but ultimately he's put forward by the Lord. It's God's will. Even though sinful human beings, a blind nation, has something to do with it. But it's ultimately God's will to kill him. We learn that he's a substitute, like we said. All that language, it's for us, for our iniquities, for our transgressions. We learn that he's innocent and righteous. We learn that um, he makes many righteous out of this death. We learn that he dies. We learn that he will be brought back to life. We learn that he will be rewarded and that he intercedes for sinners. All in Isaiah 53. And now the the next chapters in Isaiah 54 and 55, they work out some implications of, of what happens in 53. The implication is that out of the obedience of this son, out of the servant, the implication is that he is now able to restore Israel back to himself fully and finally. Notice chapter 1, verse 1 of 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Meaning, post-exile Israel will have more children Then pre-exile Israel. This is incredibly interesting. Because she's not been in labor. She's going to have children in a way that's not normal. Log that away. So down, he says, verse 7, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. This is still talking about Israel, by the way. I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Because of them? No. Because of the Son, in Isaiah 53. So he's able to restore Israel back to himself fully and finally. And another implication is that it will be completely free. Because the king earned it for the people, Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts now in this language you're saying everyone like does it mean like everyone like not just Israel but everyone I think that's the right question come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money without price why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied listen now listen here listen diligently to me And eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear, come to me, hear, that your soul may what? Live the opposite of death. Out of the life of the servant. This implication from 55 is that this righteousness will be completely free. It's without money. It's obtained without any any of your work. Because the king has earned it for his people. And not only Israel, but also for the Gentiles. Look in verse 4 of the same chapter. Behold. Well, we, we skipped over the most important verse. Verse 3. Incline your ear, come to me. I, sorry, I stopped short. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Now. Yeah, we we'll don't go into this. That's a hard text to translate in Isaiah 55, But I think the point is he's, he's beckoning people to come to him saying he's going to make a covenant with them and he's going to make it based on this sure mercy of David. So what does that mean? I think he's talking about the faithfulness, the, the what he obtains for his people. David being the new David, the son that you just talked that we just heard, heard. He earned this for us and is, we could say, democratizing the blessings of the covenant to the people who come to him. So he's earning it and dispensing it. The blessings that we couldn't obtain for ourselves. And I think that's the point of this verse. So then he says, behold, it's not just for Israel. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples, plural. Behold, you shall call a nation. Now he's back talking to the nation. You, Israel, shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. So the restoration of Israel leads to the restoration of the nation. Now if we just step back for a second and look at these three chapters, 53, 54, 55, 55. It's going to give you a list of everything that sinners receive in place of judgment through the work of the servant. Both Jews and Gentiles receive. They receive peace. They receive healing, which kind of implies like a a, a life back from the dead. They receive righteousness. They receive an inheritance. They receive compassion. They receive everlasting love from the Father. They receive glory. They receive an intimate relationship with God. Nobody has to teach them, meaning God's going to teach them. He's going to communicate himself to them. They're going to have security, eternal security. They're going to have a servant status. So what's interesting is this servant makes everyone who follows him into servants. And they're going to have eternal life, abundant forgiveness, and eternal joy. And you can read Isaiah 53 through 55 and see all of that right there in the text. Now, it's incredibly interesting how this plays out right here in Isaiah's prophecy. I studied it again this week and was floored by how specific Isaiah is. Isaiah tells us in the, the last two chapters of Isaiah that there will be division within the nation. Around the servant and his servants, plural. So the Jews who come to the servant and receive his work on their behalf, they listen to him. He's going to give them a new name. It says right here in Isaiah. But there's going to be others whom Isaiah is going to call their brothers. What does that mean? It's other Israelites who do not listen to the servant and they persecute the other Jews who do listen to the sermon. So he says in the beginning of 65... Ah, shoot. I, uh, I, need, to, I need to fast forward here. Okay, so I've only got 10 minutes. Okay? See so if I can pick one. 65, 66. Just note that in your mind. This division theme is happening around, around that. And you can see it right here in, in 66, verse 5. He says... Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. 66, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake, that's picked up an axe, by the way, cast you out for my namesake, have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. These are the people back in verse 4 that when, when the Lord called through his servant, no one answered. When he spoke, they didn't listen, but they did what was evil in his eyes. They chose that which in, in which he didn't delight. And this is going to lead to exile, destruction. Look at verse 6, like another one. Think AD 70. The sound of an uproar from the city, verse 6. A sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. And the enemies are the brothers who fail to heed the servants word. now we think with Israel rejected some of them not all of them there's division so how are they going like, to how does this work this rejection though Will not thwart God's plan, his plan to fill the earth with his image. And shockingly, Isaiah predicts that the remnant of Israel will have offspring. She'll have children before she ever goes into labor. Her children will be Gentiles who are born from her. Look what he says here, verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. It's a different audience than the ethnic people. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied. She is your mother now. From her consoling breasts, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations, Like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse. You Gentiles shall nurse. You shall be carried upon her hip. And bounced upon her knees. As the one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted. In Jerusalem. You shall see. Your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation. Against his enemies. So, step back here Israel's failed as a son chapter 1 God supplies his son Isaiah 9 his son obeys where Israel failed and earns all the righteousness that that Israel and the nations need the covenantal obedience and then that the son comes and announces to his nation to repent, to receive this free of charge. Some receive it, become His servants. Some don't, and persecute His servants. But God will not be thwarted, and so He brings offspring from Israel in Gentile. In Isaiah. So, when we go to the New Testament, the Gospels know Isaiah frontwards and backwards. Acts knows Isaiah frontwards and backwards. You're going to see these themes play out throughout the Gospels and Acts, particularly Luke and Acts. And so the obvious question then is, who is this son? Who is he? Well, that's the key question throughout the Gospels. And just flip over to Matthew just real quick because I don't have any more time. I actually have five more minutes. It's only 10.10. Oh, four minutes. You see my clock. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is chapter 1, verse 1. So Matthew is very concerned that we understand the line and that it's of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew wants us to know that this is the son of the woman. flip over to Luke chapter 1 here comes the lightning fast tour in three minutes we're told from the very beginning who he is look in Luke 1 31 through 33 he tells Mary the angel says behold you will conceive in your womb 31 And bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's Isaiah. So it's going to be Jesus. The Father confirms this over in chapter 3. When he's baptized... Chapter 3, verse 22, The Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form, and like a dove, a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That well pleased language is coming from Isaiah. You are my Son is the Sonship theme. Then, just so we don't miss it, He connects Jesus in His genealogy Not just to Abraham, not just to David, then to Abraham, but he works backwards all the way in this next paragraph. Look down at the bottom, chapter, uh, verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus, verse 23, is, all these names, the son of God. He is the son. Isaiah's son, the son of the woman, the son of God. The new Adam, who will obey And restore God's purposes for creation. So then he goes out into the wilderness. And the devil tempts him. And notice in verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, If you're the son of God, so prove your sonship status by taking authority, by doing what Adam did and circumventing God. That's not what he does. He proves he's the son by submitting to the words of his father. Again in verse 9. If you are the Son of God, Satan says. So the point is, he's trying to say, Are you the Son? Yeah? Let me tempt you this other way to, to invalidate your sonship, but he validates his sonship. He comes out victorious in the temptation in the wilderness. He proves he's obedient where all others failed Israel and Adam before. He has the Spirit, just like Isaiah said, chapter 4, verse 14. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He reads from Isaiah in the next story. He opens the scroll, verse 17. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives. So he quoting from Isaiah, rolls up the scroll, sits down, and everybody's looking at him. And they say, Is this not Joseph's son? No, he's not. Israel doesn't see it. In fact, they try to kill him at the end of this story. He goes out, and the demons know it. He's healing, and notice what they say. Verse 41 of chapter 4, And the demons came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! God. The demons know after fulfilling prophecy, after prophecy from Isaiah, healing, everything else, he puts it to the disciples in chapter 9. Who am I? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And they get it. They say, you're the Christ. We understand. You're the anointed one, Isaiah. You're the son. We, we see this. And after they make this connection about his identity, it is then and only then that Jesus begins to predict how he must first suffer before he is exalted and glorified. Verse 21. The Son of Man must suffer many things, chapter 9, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem because he knows he must go there to fulfill Isaiah 53 and other prophecies. Look in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 31, almost done. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Before he dies, he tells the disciples in specificity in chapter 22 what his death means. It's a new Passover of sorts, where he becomes the new lamb, the new substitutionary sacrifice on their behalf. He becomes, his body's the bread, his blood is the wine, Luke 22. And he dies in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He rises from the dead in victory, and then he meets some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and they're sad. And they're sad because they don't know that the Messiah was supposed to die. And notice what He says to them. Chapter 24. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow apart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, and then they talk it there. And I love this phrase: the, the disciples articulate. They say, "Did not our hearts burn within us when He opened us the scriptures?" Did burn? He grants the Messiah grants the ability to understand his significance from the Old Testament and how it's applying right now. And then he commissions these people, Israel. Renewed Israel. All these guys are Jews. Renewed Israel. His servants. He commissions them to be His witnesses. That's another Isaiah theme. His witnesses to proclaim forgiveness of sins to the nations. I'm not going to cover that. Because he says it there at the end of Luke 24. So we can see, wow, Isaiah set the stage for us to understand the significance of substitutionary significance of the son. I'm sure that raises all kinds of questions. That's good, right? Because I'm just scratching the surface. But I want to get these categories in your mind so that when we come into, like looking in depth at his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, that we understand the categories as we're coming into it. Make sense? This was a lot of data. But we're going to build on this next week. So come back, listen to part two of Christ's the substitutionary savior let's pray father we thank you know this was a lot but we thank you for the clarity of your word and the confidence we have as our hearts burn within us as we think about the fulfillment of your son and all that that means for us even as gentiles and I pray that we would go now encouraged by this, encouraged that you love us eternally. We are in the new covenant because of your son, not because of anything we've done. And that you would teach us to, to be faithful to this message and to share it with others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Woo, all right. Got to run over to the main service. Sorry, guys.